Hello and welcome to the AgroInnovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade, globalization, and organics. I'm your host, Frank Aragona, and welcome to this first episode of the AgroInnovations.com podcast for the year 2009. Uh, Today is the 5th of January, and I wish you all a happy new year. 2009 looks to be an interesting year for all of us, Uh, probably a difficult year, but interesting nonetheless. Before we get started with the podcast, I'd just like to remind our listeners of a few things. Uh, the first of those is that the agroinnovations.com podcast, this and all episodes, are distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So you can learn more about that at creativecommons.org. And also I'd like to remind our listeners that We are always looking for comments, suggestions, and ways to spread the word about this podcast. Uh, I am producing these more frequently now, as many of you might know, so please help us get the word out. And now on to today's interview guest. Uh, Many of you who have been following some of the debate we've been having online about open source appropriate technology will be excited to know that we are dealing with that issue today on this episode of the podcast. We are joined by Andrew Bowyer. Adrian. Sorry, Adrian uh, Boyer, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Bath, and he is also the lead researcher in the RepRap Machine Project. Uh, Adrian, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Hello. uh, Glad to be here. Thank you. So let's uh, start by... I'd, I'd like to ask you to give us a brief rundown of the nature of the project, its origins, and uh, what it is trying to accomplish. Okay, well, I better start with uh, what it's trying to accomplish, actually, because that will allow us to lead off to answer the other questions as well. Um, uh, but, uh, RepRap is short for Replicating Rapid Prototyper, uh, so I better describe what a rapid prototyper is before we go on to how it might replicate or copy itself. Um, a rapid prototyper is a three-dimensional printer. Uh, what uh, rapid prototyper is what engineers call 3D printers, and it's a device which will plug into your computer and allow you to print three dimensional objects in plastic or indeed some other materials some machines will do uh, and it does that directly without your needing to do anything other than to generate a three-dimensional shape using an ordinary CAD package on the computer and what we've done uh, to make it replicate is to design a rapid prototyper that uh, has most of its parts that are rapid prototyped and in that way the machine can make most of its own parts. It can't assemble them, it was not intended to do that, uh, but it basically makes a kit for making another one of itself. And uh, the genesis of the project uh, was in in 2004 when I originally had the idea. Um, uh, I thought Using conventional rapid prototypers is an extremely uh, liberating experience for an engineer. Uh, We had acquired one a couple of years earlier, um, and it was quite extraordinary. It was like uh, the advent of word processors for writing. It makes life just so much easier. You can design something and print it and have it in your hand half an hour later. Wonderful technology, um, but uh, a very expensive technology at the time, and indeed most rapid prototyping machines still are. Typically, you can spend twenty or $30,000 on a machine, even quite a low-end machine. Um, and it occurred to me that the obvious thing to do with this technology was to make it copy itself because it was so versatile in the shapes and objects that it could manufacture. 
And so we designed the machine such that uh, it could copy most, though not all, of its own component parts. And uh, we've got a team together now all over the world working on it. Um, and it's progressed from there. And a significant milestone was this summer, uh, early this summer, when we uh, had the machine make a complete copy of itself for the first time and assembled it and got it working. And in fact, that child machine, a child of a parent machine, uh, the first thing it did was to make a part for itself. So that part was sort of a grandchild part. And uh, that happened in May, in fact, this, uh, sorry, last year, 2008. Okay. Uh, can, can you describe the machine itself, uh, you know, what it's, a, what it's like? Um, I know there's pictures online, and we will link to your website on the uh, podcast page. But uh, just try to give people a, a general idea of how this machine works. Okay. Uh, it's like a computer-controlled glue gun, um, a rather sophisticated glue gun, but nonetheless, that's the principle of it. If you imagine uh, taking a, a flat sheet of wood, uh, like, say, MDF, the material they use for making kitchen units out of, and you've got a glue gun, and you put the flat sheet of wood on the floor, and you scribbled on the flat sheet of wood, you could put a layer of glue down. And if you then lifted the glue gun up a little bit and scribbled another layer, you could put a layer of glue on top of the first layer, and you could keep going until you built up a three-dimensional object in glue. And, of course, glue in glue gun is a type of low-melting-point plastic. Um, now, that's what the machine does, except instead of a handheld glue gun, you've got a glue gun that's moved around by uh, stepper motors under the control of a computer, so it can move very, very precisely. And also the stream of glue, or plastic, in fact we use other sorts of plastic than the plastic we use in glue guns, the stream of plastic coming out of the end uh, is a much finer diameter, so we can make much more detailed and intricate shapes than you could possibly imagine making with a glue gun. Um, so the computer builds a layer uh, on a flat sheet, and then the flat sheet drops down a little bit, about half a millimetre in fact, and then you build the next layer, and then you build the next layer on top of that, and that's all done completely automatically. All you have to do as the person running the machine is to tell it what shape you file, the file holding the shape you want to make initially, and, and then hit the print button. Okay. Uh, now, you've talked about uh, this machine, the RepRap machine, as self-replicating. What are the implications of a self-replicating self machine? Uh, well, one, there, there's several, really. Uh, let me emphasize, it can't replicate without a human being to assemble it. What it does is to make a kit of parts for itself. Um, so it's not completely self-replicating. Uh, there are also one or two parts that it can't make for itself, the electric motors at the moment, for example, though we're working on that. Uh, so you have to buy in some things from, from outside. And the decision we've made is that uh, those bought-in parts uh, should be available all over the world and should be pretty inexpensive as well. And so uh, the machine either makes a bit for itself or you can get it virtually anywhere. Uh, the implications of this technology are, first of all, that it's very, very cheap. I mentioned the price of a conventional rapid prototyping machine, 20, $30,000 US dollars. Um, our machine can be put together for about six or $700. Of course, currencies have been going all over the place recently, so I think that figure is reasonably accurate at the beginning of 2009. Um, uh, it used to be a little bit less, but the dollar, unfortunately, has dropped, so uh, now it's got a little bit more expensive to put one together. Um, but... Um, uh, that's an incredible reduction uh, in the cost of such a machine over the uh, uh, versions that you can buy industrially. 
And the other advantage you get from the fact that it can replicate itself with human assistance uh, is of course that once you've got one you can have any number so if you're using these machines to make something and you need to double your production you just get your machine to make another machine and suddenly you're making things twice as fast and then four times as fast eight times and so on uh, what's more you can of course uh, give one to anybody else that you want or, or sell one to anybody else that you want uh, for the cost of the raw materials or you could add it in bit of profit for yourself. One of the things we've done is to make the entire project open source um, uh, using, in fact, free hardware, if you like, using GNU general public license. Um, what that means is that nobody has to pay any royalties when they copy the machine. Uh, you're free to do that yourself. Um, so uh, it will allow you to make copies of itself and you can give those to somebody else or sell them to somebody else. You can do whatever you like with them. Um, and that will allow people to start manufacturing things for themselves, which normally they'd expect to have to go to a shop to buy and consequently the shop would have to get made in a, in a factory. Um, what we're trying to do is to uh, do for uh, three-dimensional solid material objects what YouTube has done for television programs. Uh, we want people to design things, put them on the web, and then people on the other side of the planet to download those files and make them. And so they've got the object uh, without any material uh, having to have moved over the surface of the earth at all, just data. Now, also one thing I, I'd like to add, which uh, of course you're aware of, but uh, that you didn't mention, is that uh, under the general public license, people can freely make modifications to the design of the machine. Absolutely true. And of course, given that it replicates uh, with human assistance, as I keep putting that proviso in, because it's not like a, an autonomous organism, a bacterium, for example, which can make a copy of itself just with a supply of nutrients. Um, it does need human assistance to do it. Um, given that it can replicate and given that people can modify the design, people are going to make improvements all over the place, I'm sure. Indeed, I'm sure our original design is not that good. It's good enough to replicate and that's fine by us. But uh, people have seen all sorts of improvements. Um, now, of course, you've immediately, therefore, got the possibility of evolution because uh, you've got a machine that's having variations in itself. Uh, those variations are a little bit like mutations, though, of course, they're unlike mutations in nature. They're not random. They're deliberate and therefore deliberately intended as improvements. So far more of them are likely to be successful. Um, and you've got a whole load of these machines out there making copies of, each of themselves. Um, and the best designs will obviously be the ones that prosper, where best means they work fastest or most accurately or they're most cheap or they need the fewest number of added in parts to, to make a complete machine and so on. Um, so we, we've got the possibility of the, the machine evolving, but evolving under human control and design, rather like the way uh, we breed animals and plants, the way we made uh, Labrador out of a wolf and so on, rather than evolution as it happens in, in the wild, where the source of changes is, is random mutation, as I said. And of course, uh, thanks to Richard Stallman and the other folks in the free software movement, uh, this is also... Uh, you know, part of the general public license is that it's it's viral in the sense that if people do make modifications to the machine and want to distribute that, they have to use the same licensing requirements. Absolutely right. So if you make an improvement and you post that, you're obliged to post all the details uh, for anybody else to make the same improvement along with that. Um, and indeed, that's happened with the RAT machine already. I can give you an example in a moment. And of course, what that means is, as you say, thanks to Stolman and the way he wrote the license, um, it, it means that... It, 
everybody gets to benefit from the improvements. So if, just to take an example, if you've got a RetRat machine uh, that you built two or three years ago and lots of people have posted improvements since, you can download all those improvements and have your old machine make a machine to the latest design. Um, it's doing for hardware what the idea of a software upgrade did and the information required uh, will all be freely available. You won't have to pay for it. I wonder if Stallman saw that coming down. Uh, the, this was back in the '80s that he, uh, yeah. you know, started working on this issue in terms of software. I wonder if he saw it coming down the pipeline in terms of hardware. Uh, that would be something interesting to I ask him. I don't know if he saw it right from the beginning, but certainly um, he and I uh, met. Uh, we met years ago uh, at a conference in France, but we we he came to visit uh, the the project and me at Bath University uh, last year, and we had a long discussion about all sorts of aspects of this. Um, and certainly in recent years, he's started to see uh, – the the GNU general public license and and similar licenses like the BSD license and so on are being applied to all sorts of hardware. Um, there's, for example, a project on the web to make an open source car. And there's a project on the web to make uh, a, a, a free uh, mobile phone design and and all sorts of things like that. And RetRap is another, indeed uh, one of the first, if I may say so, uh, open source uh, hardware project along those lines. But Uniquely, uh, it's designed to copy itself, and so you've got built into it the thing that allows things like software and music and so on to spread virally and very rapidly, uh, which is, of course, the ease with which they can be replicated. Um, it's wonderful to have a design for uh, a mobile phone, which you can download free off the web, um, but you still have to have all the facilities needed to make the phone. Um, the thing about RepRap is that it is its own manufacturing facility, and that, of course, is what we hope will allow it to spread particularly rapidly. And that's the very reason why I've uh, been focusing on, you know, that this is probably the most important development that the open source appropriate technology community needs to focus on over the next 18 months or so. Because, as you said, it's it's great that you can get these designs online. But, uh, you know, we're it's kind of like both of our hands are tied behind our backs because our ability to actually fabricate anything is so limited uh, yes that's true unless you unless you happen to have a pretty well equipped workshop um which of course many hobbyists do have uh, because they've taken the trouble to expend the money um what we want to do is to increase vastly the number of people uh, who will have access to the appropriate manufacturing technology to build all sorts of things. And in particular, of course, this means not just people in the industrial uh, rich countries, but people in the developing world as well. Um, what we'd like to see very much is this technology moving into uh, poorer countries because it will allow them to get a foot on the manufacturing uh, first rung of the manufacturing ladder, uh, which has made the the rest of us rich. Um, there's only there are only really two ways in history for a country to get rich. Uh, one is to find itself floating on a sea of oil, or some other serious natural resource, uh, and the other is to make stuff. Uh, all the rich countries in the world got rich by making stuff, uh, except for the oil company countries, of course. And so um, that's uh, an opportunity that's denied to many of the world's poorer people. Um, because they don't have the capital needed to invest in the considerable uh, manufacturing uh, startup 
that's that's required to get to make almost anything um if we look at the world's manufacturing industry as we all know it's gravitating towards china because they have very low labor costs uh but even in china if you're going to just take the example we just talked about if you're going to make a mobile phone in china where most of them are made of course um uh, you have to spend billions of dollars setting up a fabrication plant to, to do that now sure your labor costs are low but your capital startup is enormous um, with machines like the RetRat machine, we hope that your capital startups can be a few hundred dollars and therefore even the poorest community, possibly acting collectively, uh, can get together and, uh, and, and get a start on making things both for themselves and of course to sell to their neighbors and so on. Okay, and we're, we're going to get to some of those issues a little bit later on. I did want to ask you uh, why you chose to use the general public license. I mean, couldn't you have positioned yourself to, to make a, a handy fortune uh, by patenting this? I could have tried. Um, I have to say that there were two reasons why I didn't. Um, one of them is, is, is frightfully pompous and, and uh, makes, me, makes me sound a little bit silly, but nonetheless uh, just too well-intentioned for words. Uh, and, and that is that when I first thought of this, I thought this is going to be a pretty powerful technology if it works. And that a good way to, to make bad things happen with a powerful technology is to have humanity divided into two groups of people, those who have it and those who have to buy it off them. Uh, a good example of where that goes spectacularly wrong for, is, is, in, is in drug manufacturing supply, where we all know that the world's sickest people don't have the finances to allow them to get to the medicines that they need because of the way uh, drug patenting works. Um, so, as I say... Uh, Trying to restrict things in that way uh, with a very powerful technology is a recipe for inequality and 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 uh, ba misery, basically, amongst those who don't have the technology. Now, all right, I'd be amongst the group who did have it, but nonetheless, it doesn't seem to be a particularly good reason to, to try and restrict the access. Anyway, after I'd had all those high-minded thoughts, I realized that you have to give it away if it copies itself, because if you don't, if you try to protect it, as you say, uh, what you're saying to the world is I've got this machine that copies itself now nobody can copy it so what you're saying is I want to spend the rest of my life in court trying to stop people from doing with my idea the one thing that it was designed to do and I've got better things to do than spend the rest of my life in court so uh, for that second reason as well I decided to uh, give it away under the GPL so that uh, I didn't have to bother about anybody making the machine uh, anybody setting up a company to make it or any of that sort of thing. Anybody is free to do that as much or as little as they like. Indeed, uh, we just had a, a new thing in the last couple of days. A company here in, in the United Kingdom has uh, started to uh, manufacture and distribute the machines to British schools uh, to uh, act as a focus for technology education for uh, secondary school children uh, in the ages of about uh, 13 through 16. Um, and that's something that's happened the last couple of days. And of course, they're able to do that perfectly, uh, liberty to do that because, uh, because of the licensing arrangement. They don't have to pay us anything. Uh, they've kindly acknowledged us on their website, but apart from that, we get, we get nothing out of it. And I'm perfectly happy with that. Now, you talked about uh, the achievements of the project to date. Uh, you did have a pretty big milestone this past summer when, the, when you got a riprap machine to create its own parts. Uh, what yep. do you expect to achieve in the next 12 to 18 months? Well, we want to do 
several things I I over the next uh, year, year and a half. Um, one of them is to increase the range of materials that the machine can work with. At the moment, uh, we work with four plastics, uh, four different thermoplastics. Uh, one polycaprolactone that melts at a very low temperature, which is rather convenient for that reason. Um, one uh, ABS, uh, which is the plastic they make Lego bricks out of, and that has some nice mechanical properties and also nice properties when it's molten. Um, we use that for those reasons. Um, there's also HDPE, high density polyethylene. Uh, the reason we like to work with that is because it's the plastic that's very widely used for things like milk bottles and so on. And we want to go on to make a shredder that the machine can manufacture for itself, which will allow the machine to recycle plastic in people's own homes. So instead of having their plastic recycling taken away on a truck, they'll actually be able to use plastic objects that exist in their own house to make new plastic objects. And one of the examples we did there was we made a pair of child's shoes uh, on the machine. Uh, and uh, of course, what one would be able to do when the child's feet grow, as they so inconveniently and expensively do, uh, is to uh, shred the shoes add a new couple of milk bottles, scale the design by a factor of 1.1 and make a new pair of shoes for the child and that's an extremely ecologically benign way to go about manufacturing things using old things with no transport or virtually no transport apart from the milk lorry coming, uh, no transport involved at all. Uh, another thing that we want to do is to have the machine work with a material that is an electrical conductor so what we'll then be able to do is to build uh, plastic objects with electrical circuitry embedded in them in three dimensions and this means that we'll be able to make the equivalent of a printed circuit board into which we'll then be able to plug chips and, and build the electronics of the machine which would obviously be a good idea the moment the electronics is made conventionally on a conventional printed circuit board uh, but it'll mean you'll also be able to build three-dimensional objects which have their electrical circuitry embedded in them as opposed to needing to add extra circuit boards to make electromechanical devices and we think that that will be a very useful uh, ability for the machine to, to have so that's certainly something we want to do are you um, all, go ahead sorry go on no uh, that, that's more or less our, our plans for the immediate future uh, that, that's that's what we're going to be doing next I was going to ask you if you're looking to uh, you, you describe the machine as basically a glue gun uh, yeah a sophisticated glue gun but the glue gun is basically the head uh, that's being controlled by the uh, the CNC um, yep do you have any plans to create like detachable uh, heads for you yes. know different types uh, for cutting and other sorts of things like that? Well, I'm not so interested in adding cutting heads to the machine, though other people have already started to think about that. And, of course, that's great. Uh, the more different heads that people do along those lines, the better. Um, but... The current machine, the, the first version of the machine, which we call RepRap version 1, obviously, um, we give it the nickname Darwin because it's the origin of species. Um, we, uh, with that machine, it, you can put two heads in it, so you can use two different materials in the machine. Uh, the next version of the machine is going to be a great improvement because it's only going to have one head, which sounds like a bit of a retrograde step, in fact. But the reason why it's an improvement is that that head will be able to be swapped by the machine itself. 
So it can have a whole row of other heads along the side of itself and go and pick one up when it needs it and use it to build with the material that that particular head works with. And so in that way, the next version of the machine will have perhaps half a dozen different materials which you'll be able to use uh, in order to make a single object, uh, different types of plastic, electrical conductors, possibly a material that's water-soluble, and that's particularly convenient because it means you can make parts of an object which act as supports and so on and which you can subsequently dissolve away. Um, uh, ceramics are another very useful type of material. If we can work with uh, a loose clay slip and uh, build up three-dimensional shapes of that, of course, once that's dried and fired, it will withstand very, very high temperatures. So you've got a process that's going on at room temperature, which is capable of making, uh, for example, a mold in which you could then cast a metal. Um, and that would be an extremely convenient uh, thing to be able to do. Uh, waxes would be another useful type of material because with those you can make, uh, again, example objects for the lost wax process, another casting process which has been around since uh, antiquity, um, which allows you to make complicated shapes in, in metals, having first uh, modeled them in wax. And all of those different possibilities start to open up once you can have multiple heads which the machine can go and pick up and use as and when it wants. And that, as I say, is what the, what the next stage of the development is, is going to be mainly about. We also have plans to put a laser in the machine. Um, we haven't uh, taken this very far yet, but one of the variations on the RetRat machine that people have already done is to make a version that you can cut out on a laser cutter. Um, and that's very convenient because lots of people have access to laser cutters these days. Um, and... Uh, of course, all that we need to be able to do in order to allow the RetRat machine to do that sort of uh, manufacture is to put a laser head in it. Now, the machine isn't going to make a laser anytime soon, uh, but you can get cheap carbon dioxide infrared lasers for doing cutting with uh, really quite readily now. And uh, putting one of those in the machine would allow us to turn it into a laser cutter. Uh, and that's probably the most useful cutting technology that we'll be concentrating on if we were going to go for cutting heads, going back to what you asked uh, a few minutes ago. Can you talk about the role and importance of building a community around uh, this open source model and uh, how, that, how that's played out in terms of design, uh, development and deployment? Oh, it's, it's absolutely essential for the project. Um, as I mentioned, I had the idea in 2004, and it started off with, with me, obviously, and I then uh, got a research student at my university to work on it, a guy called Ed Sells, and I was very fortunate to get him because he is a really brilliant mechanical and designer and also a good software engineer and electronics person and so on, but, but his absolute forte is... is exquisitely clever mechanical design um, much of the success of the first machine is is uh, down to his his abilities um, however once we started uh, we thought going back to the fact that this is potentially a very powerful technology that we ought to tell the world about it because uh, being socially responsible you don't want to keep something that's powerful under wraps um, because people might have comments and thoughts about it so we put out a press release from the university that we were going to start the project um, and as a result of doing that, which happened in 2005, um, uh, I got lots of emails from people who said, hey, this is an interesting idea. Can we help? Um, some of them were from one or two people who obviously didn't quite have the talent to be able to help, I regret to say. Uh, but many of them, I'm glad, uh, equally glad to say, um, are uh, people who were 
absolutely essential to the development of the project because they contributed lots and lots of ideas. Um, and so I was able to set up a team of people around the world uh, who were doing all the design on the machine uh, together with us, uh, developing lots of the software, uh, designing the electronics, uh, making the circuit boards, uh, setting up the web so that we had a wiki where people could post the uh, documentation of the machine and so we could have version control system and uh, for, for all the designs and all that sort of thing. All of that has been done by a, gr a whole group of volunteers um, and the project really wouldn't have worked at all without them. So that community that we've been able to establish and it's a community that depends entirely on the fact that it's a, a, a free hardware project, um, that community has been vital for the development of the machine. Okay, great. Um, now tell us how many RipRap machines are currently in use. We don't know. Uh, we do have a minimum figure because one of the things that we did, I mentioned that you have to use conventional circuit board electronics in the first machine. Uh, we set up a not-for-profit uh, company in New York called the RepRap Research Foundation to supply people with electrical circuit boards. Um, and I think I'm correct in saying that uh, the last count, which was about three or four months ago, uh, that company had sold 1,200 electronics kits. So we know that the minimum number of machines out there is 1,200. Uh, but we think it's many more than that because a lot of people make their own electronics using a strip board uh, because it's quite possible to solder it up yourself on, on strip board. Um, so the minimum figure for the number out there is 1,200. Uh, that's at the end of 2008, beginning 2009. And I should say that at the beginning of 2008, we had five machines. So that's a reasonable growth in numbers. Um, so, uh, as I say, that, that's a minimum, but we don't know what the true figure is. We have, we have no real way of, of making an estimate. What can the machine make now, uh, and how do you hope, and, wh and what do you hope it can make in, in the future? Now it makes what we might call everyday sort of hand-sized, hand-held plastic objects. Things like, uh, well, I can run through a list of things that I've actually made uh, around my own house using the machine simply because I needed the object. Uh, coat hooks, door handles, that sort of thing. Sorts of things that everybody needs but doesn't really think about as, as, as needing. Well, instead of driving down to the shop, uh, when I wanted a coat hook, for example, to Quite literally, I just designed one on the computer. It took me about seven minutes and hit the print button. It took about an hour for the machine to print, but I could go away and read a book while that was happening, so that's fine. And then I had a coat of um, uh, slightly more esoteric, but uh, perhaps more useful to the world in general, things like water filters. Uh, I've already mentioned the, the pair of children's shoes that we made as an experiment to, to, to try out with the machine. Um, one of the first things that I made was uh, at the request of my wife. Um, <laughs> she was going to drive to see her brother, who lives about 100 miles away, and uh, she wanted to plug her iPod into her car so she'd list her music, and that was fine. She had the piece of wire. But what she didn't have was anything to secure the iPod to the dashboard of the car. And so uh, the car that she drives happened to ha happens to have a little clip on the dashboard for holding coins, uh, which you use for feeding traffic meters and so on, um, and, and tolls and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, what I did was to make a bracket that held her iPod and that fitted into that coin slot. Now, that's not an object that you can buy in the shops. But once again, it took me about 20 minutes to design. It took the machine an hour and a half to make. And I gave it to her just before she left and she could listen to her music. And um, the ability uh, that the machine gives you simply to solve a problem like that 
with very, very little effort is really quite a, a liberating experience. Um, and of course, as with the machine, uh, when we design things for the machine, we post all those online as well. So all those objects that I've mentioned are available free to download for anybody who wants them. And indeed, we set up a library a little bit like uh, YouTube or Flickr or whatever, Flickr for still photographs. Um, we set up a library where anybody can upload designs of anything they want. And um, well, you do have a restriction. We don't allow people to upload weapons for obvious reasons. But apart from that, people can upload designs for anything that they want. And uh, then other people can download them and, uh, and manufacture those objects wherever they might be. This concludes the first half of our interview with uh, Adrian Bowyer of the RipRap Project. Next week, we will post part two of the interview where we talk about some of the uh, broader implications of the RipRap Project and uh, also some of the practical ways that uh, people can get RepRap in their hands. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the AgroInnovations.com podcast. Saludos. <laughs>